Let's stand together as Bob comes this morning to read our scripture as we continue in our study of the book of Amos. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the late crops were coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. The sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. This is the word of the Lord from Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as I was thinking about this passage in Amos chapter 7 and thinking about how, as we'll talk about this morning, it it actually demonstrates to us so much of God's patience and God's mercy. I was preparing to open today with a story about a time when I did not show patience. And I had this story ready to go, but I'm going to save it for another time because God provided another one this week where I don't have to tell on myself for something I did wrong, but instead get to share with you what for sure in the Costanzo home was the most exciting part of our week this week. So to, to understand this story, I'm going to take you back a couple of weeks and show you a picture. So a couple of weeks ago, I came out one morning to find that my yard had been really torn up by some little critter. And I looked around and uh, on our, our little front porch security camera and actually found the footage of this armadillo tearing up our yard in the middle of the night. I shared it on our neighborhood page and started finding out that lots of our neighbors were being terrorized by this armadillo, all right? But there's a whole lot to this story, okay? But I'm going to fast forward to the end. This armadillo messed with the wrong Italian, all right? <laughs> we outsmarted him. We actually kind of got lucky, but we outsmarted him and we caught him and no longer is this armadillo doing the damage and destruction that it's been doing we were pretty proud of ourselves and honestly again i'm italian i had some plans for this armadillo okay i i was going to make sure that this armadillo would never be able to tear up another yard again but my two daughters, my young daughters, were a part of the process of capturing this thing, and they demanded that I show the armadillo mercy. So rather than meeting out justice with my macabre plans, we took the armadillo far, far away from home. I have some neighbors in the room. We took him far, far away from home, 
and we let him go. And Abigail, my 13-year-old, I don't think she trusted that I was actually going to keep my word, so she went with me in the middle of the night to supervise and make sure that it was a friendly and safe release. God provided this story, and honestly, I think it, it flows so well into this chapter. Thanks be to God, he is much more patient with me than I am to those who have wronged me. Thanks be to God, he is much more merciful to us than we are to ourselves and than we are so often to others. Though this chapter is more descriptions of destruction, potential devastation, the consequences, the judgment for the sin and the lack of repentance of the people of Israel, our theme for this morning here in chapter 7 is the word mercy. Because I believe that even through all of the hard things that we've read and that we'll talk about for the next few moments, God's mercy here is clear. God has to have been merciful to this point in Amos because with all we've read up until now, we know that God has been being patient. In fact, for, for more than 150 years, if you look through the books of the Kings, these people have been chasing after these same idols. They've not been worshiping the one true God. They have traded him in for the worship of worthless idols. They've chosen selfishness and injustice over obedience and justice. And as a result, they've chosen destruction over repentance. And yet God has continued to try to call them back, that they would look at the path that they're on, they would see that it's headed to destruction, they would repent, they would turn, and they would go back the, the other direction to walk the path of life, the path of restoration. And in thinking about God's patience, God's mercy, the many opportunities he had given them to turn back to him. I think back to Amos chapter 4. Hopefully you'll remember from a few weeks ago the heart of that chapter where God lists out the many ways he had been trying to call them back and had been trying to call their ancestors back to a place of obedience. He said, I, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and a lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I withheld rain from you. People staggered from town to town looking for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I struck your gardens and vineyards. Locusts devoured your fig and your olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you. I killed your young men with the sword. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord means God used to call Israel to repentance they simply would not listen nevertheless God was patient with them God showed them mercy God used so many different avenues to try to call them away from the path of destruction back onto the path of life but again they simply would not listen 
And let me go ahead and just tell you where we're going to land today. God's promises still stand. Why do I say that? Because God is still patient with us. We still experience his mercy. We still can say even more than the people in Amos's day could ever understand that we've experienced his love even though so often we have been just like the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. We've chosen the path that leads to destruction over the path of life. We've not listened to the voice of God. We've chosen disobedience over faithfulness, and we have trampled on the head of justice. We've done it too. And yet we know what even Amos did not know. The law came through Moses. Grace and mercy came in its fullness through Jesus Christ. Because of that, today, even when we see darkness around us, we can know and believe through the love and mercy of God that the light is overcoming the darkness. And today, as hard as this book continues to be, I pray that God will bring us further into the light. As we move into chapter 7, God has moved from the language of covenant his broken heart in the covenant relationship that's been broken with Israel, to warnings of destruction, to the heart of his message, justice and righteousness, let them flow like a river, to a very strong condemnation of idolatry, and specifically some idols we understand, like the idol of wealth, the idol of comfort, the idol of security. And now, through a series of visions, one more time, God is going to speak through Amos and call his people to repent, to turn back to him, to stand for justice and righteousness again, or else he is going to remove his hand. And the destruction they're headed towards is the destruction they will face. Chapter 7 begins with Amos seeing this vision of a plague of locusts. And I've tried to remind us as we go through this ancient book of some similarities between Amos's day and ours, the covenant people of God then and we as the church, the covenant people now. And one thing we've said every week that we have in common is that at this point in Israel's history, they had experienced great prosperity. And so much of what Amos is hearing from the Lord and that, that he's delivering to them as God's prophet is that prosperity is about to run out. And you're going to find yourselves facing destruction. In verse 1 of chapter 7, the destruction that Amos sees in this vision, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the late crops were coming up. What does that mean? Well, it means that the, the, the locusts that Amos saw were coming at the moment when the people needed the harvest the most. At the beginning of the harvest, a portion would be set aside for the king, for his palace, for his family, for his servants, even for his livestock. Then in the next part of the harvest, the people would receive the fruit of what they'd sown. And of course, in Amos's day, there weren't things like grocery stores. If you didn't have a good harvest, you couldn't just go to the store and purchase the things you needed. You were completely dependent upon the harvest. And if your harvest did not come in, then you were completely dependent upon the generosity of others to share with you and to give to you so that your 
family would not starve. What Amos sees is that a plague of locusts is going to come and destroy the harvest for everyone at the most critical moment. If the Lord were to strike their harvest in this way, it would result in total devastation. The people would starve to death. So Amos called out to God. When I saw that they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive this? He is so small. And when Amos prayed, here's our theme again, God showed his mercy. And the Lord relented. And the Lord said, This will not happen. You know, when, when the day of destruction is forecast ahead of us, when, when we begin to sense in our hearts that, that a day of judgment is near, that there, there's a, a time is coming when, when we will no longer be able to outrun our consequences, we'll no longer be able to outrun the word of God which does not return void. We, we get that sense, but we don't know how long it will be. Will it take months? Will it take years Will it take generations for our time to come? Or will it be, as we've learned from the, U the UK this week, we might not last as long as a head of lettuce, right? Did you see that story? We don't know when our time will come. But God's word does not return void. Amos sees on this occasion a plague of locusts. But then again, on a, on a, a later occasion, God speaks to him again. And he warns this time, not of a plague, but of a consuming fire of judgment. This is what the Lord showed me, verse 4. The sovereign Lord showed me. The sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. And this fire was much more than a wildfire that just burned up the fields. It dried up the great deep and it devoured the land. It consumed not only the fields, but even the reserves of water underneath. Again, Amos foresaw total devastation for the people of Israel. But when Amos prayed, God once again showed his mercy. Then I cried out, verse 5, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. And, and here again, when Amos cries out, I, I hear echoes of Moses. When Moses was, was calling out to God in Exodus after the people had fashioned a golden calf and they be, began to bow down and, and worship that idol of the golden calf as if it was their God. And Moses cried out to God, Lord, please forgive. Don't bring total destruction to your people. Amos is crying out, to God in the same way and in verse 6 again the Lord relented he heard Amos's prayer and the sovereign Lord said this will not happen either now as we think about God's mercy for a moment I want to just discuss the the word that's used here God relented because depending on what translation you read some of us, and this is a lot more for modern Protestants than it is for ancient Christians of the past, 
But some of your translations, instead of using the word relented, will say God repented. And when we hear that language, especially again with the the more Protestant influence of things like predestination and, and really a heavy focus on the sovereignty of God, all of which are, are good things, we tend to, though, to struggle with that language that God repented or even that God changed his mind. And yet when we struggle with that word, which, by the way, there are lots of mysteries of God <laughs> that we cannot explain and sometimes it's fun to talk about those things, but at some point we have to accept his mysteries and say, how do we move forward with our response and what obedience looks like? At least 21 times just in the Hebrew Old Testament, this phrase is present. God relented. God repented. God changed his mind. Some of the stories that you probably know well, the story of Noah, we find that language. Stories of Moses have this language. Probably one that we know best, the story of Jonah, when he went to the people of Nineveh and they repented, then God repented, God relented, and he did not bring on them the dis disaster that he had proclaimed. How do we wrestle with this word? Well, again, rather than trying to explain perfectly the mysteries of God, let me just say a consistent theme that we find in every one of those 21 stories. Every single time God relented or repented, one of two things happened. Either a righteous person cried out to him, or there was an act of repentance on behalf of the people. They turned away from the path of destruction, and thus they were back on the path of life. Every single time that that word is used, this language is used, a righteous person cries out, or the people who hear the message repent themselves, they turn away. And let me give you two reasons that are very similar why I think we don't, don't really understand this word. The first is because we are slow to recognize God's mercy in our own lives. We may be quick to pray for God's mercy, but we're slow to recognize it when we receive it. And often we fail to give thanks to God for his mercy when we receive it or when we consider just how great his mercy is for us. Second reason I think we struggle with that word, we don't pray enough. We as God's righteous people, we don't pray enough. We don't talk to him enough to, to really get that sense and that understanding of how the mind of God works and just how much, listen, how much he loves showing us mercy. God relented. God turned away because Amos, a righteous person, was crying out and because it was God's will that rather than bringing total destruction, a consuming fire, a plague of locusts, instead of bringing the total devastation, instead, God would measure out his justice. He would measure out the consequences they would face according to his perfect plan. So we move to the last part of our text, from the plague to the fire to the plumb line. And again, think of this in terms of separate occasions. God spoke on one occasion about the locusts. Amos prayed. On another occasion, God spoke. He gave him a vision of the consuming fire. Amos prayed. Now, again, on another occasion, God speaks about his measured judgment using a plumb line this is what the lord showed me 
the Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel, and I will spare them no longer. So what is a plumb line? Most, most people don't today use or, or know or understand what a plumb line is. Before I explain it, let me just mention uh, as a personal side note, so you all know my father-in-law. Many of you know my father-in-law. His name is Glenn Plum, right? When Glenn was our pastor growing up, his newsletter was called The Plum Line. That was his creative name for his little newsletter. So anytime I hear The Plum Line, I think about my father-in-law and his newsletter. But in Scripture, what, what, what we're being pointed to here, if this is what this word means is an ancient tool, a cord, a rope, or some kind of line that has a weight attached to it used to, to give a precise measurement that would test and differentiate between a wall, such as a brick wall or a stone wall, that's either out of alignment or a line that is true. So we can see the image that God is using. I'm measuring out my judgment among you so that we can differentiate between that which is out of alignment and that which is true. Rather than bringing total devastation, God says, I'm going to measure out a specific judgment and I'm going to measure it out as it should be according to my perfect will. Maybe another way for us to think about this is to ask the question, by what does God measure? Specifically when he's talking to his covenant people Does he say to his covenant people? I'm i'm measuring you according to some criteria But i'm keeping that criteria a secret so that you'll never figure it out You'll never really understand it and i'm going to judge you based upon a criteria that you don't know that That's not how god operates with his people How does god measure us? Here's how the ancient people would say it by the law and the prophets how did God measure with the people of Israel, with Amos, whether or not they had met the standards of obedience, whether or not they'd been faithful? It wasn't by some arbitrary idea. It was by the word they'd already received. It was by the, the word that came through Moses, the scriptures, the written word that they believed, and the words of the prophets through which God had already revealed himself. And he'd already said to his people, you know my expectations. You know my commands. You know my laws. You know the warnings that you've been given. That's the standard by which I'm measuring. And at the same time, not only am I measuring you, but I'm measuring out judgment just as I've told you. How many times did God say, if you worship and serve idols, you will become like those idols. You will become worthless. How many times did God say to his people, I've blessed you, but if you do not use your blessings to be a blessings to others, but instead become selfish and trample on the head of justice, then you will no longer experience the fruit of those blessings, but instead you will be destroyed. It's not like this is the first time they've heard this. God measures us by his word. He measures us by his work among us. 
He measures us by what we do when we remember and realize that we've experienced such great love and mercy. He's told us what he expects his covenant people to do. And as we go into chapter 8 next week, let me just give you a couple of heads up about a couple of things, especially for parents or anyone who bring small children. I tried to find, a, you know, I'm giving you a reading plan because we're not reading every single verse out loud and some verses of Amos are just, just kind of rough for younger ears. I tried to find the part of chapter 8 that would be the mildest, but I couldn't find it, okay? If we're going to deal with chapter 8, just be prepared. Parents, read it in advance and be ready to have some discussions you might need to have with your kids. I, I chose the mildest part, but it's not super mild, all right? Fair enough. But the second thing I want to say about the next chapter, but, but it really relates to, to where we are right now. In the next chapter, and what we're going to talk about a lot next week, is the importance of building our foundation and building the foundation of our families as covenant people upon the Word of God. And living as we do in such a messed up world where our kids are receiving so many mixed and false messages and young people are constantly being exposed to things that are, th that are completely contrary to the word of God. Chapter 8 is going to remind us of how important it is that how we measure what we do and what we invest is according to the word of God, the work of God, the love and mercy and blessing of God that we might be a blessing to others. And here... As God is saying, this, this judgment is going to be measured. Verse 9 tells us when it's measured out, it's not going to be pretty. At the hands of the great Assyrian Empire, this will happen. Verse 9, the high places of Isaac will be destroyed. The sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. And with my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Now, I mentioned that some will question the translation here of the word plumb line. Others will say maybe a better translation of that Hebrew word is, is some sort of a metal, like, like tin or like iron or even bronze that could be used as a weapon. So instead of God saying, I'm measuring out my judgment with a line, I'm measuring out my judgment with a weapon of destruction. In either case, the message is the same, that what's coming to Israel is not because the locusts overpowered God, not because some fire will come that, that he has no control over. It's God who's going to bring the judgment. He's had his hand of protection on them to this point, but he's about to remove that hand and then he's going to set his hand against them for a time. Lest we think this is only about Israel, God says the same thing about Judah. So Amos is prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel. But later on, the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is located, they're going to receive the same thing. They're going to chase after their idols. They're going to, generation after generation, mock the word of God. God says in 2 Kings 21... I will stretch out over Jerusalem the same measuring line that I used against Samaria, the northern kingdom, and the plumb line that I used against the house of Ahab. 
Are we listening God's covenant people to his consistent word? How much longer will you ignore my mercy? How much longer will we test his patience? At what point do we realize that the call to repent and to turn back to God is always in front of us? I know we've been waiting for a long time. We have to wait just a couple more weeks, but I have promised you that when we get to chapter 9, Amos gets a little more hopeful, okay? So we've got a couple more weeks. But when we get to chapter 9, the promise is going to come to Israel, even though God's going to measure out his judgment, that they will be restored. That, that a day will someday come where they will be redeemed, they will be restored, and God will save them from destruction. And do you know what that promise is in Amos 9? Listen to me. It's the same promise we believe. It's the promise of Jesus Christ. It's the promise of the Savior, the salvation, the only way that any of us can truly say that we can be right with God. And hear me on this. This is so important. Yes, this book reminds us of God's patience and our theme word, God's mercy. But it's also a picture of God's grace. Because what did the people deserve? They deserved total devastation. What did they get? God measured out his judgment according to his word and his will, and he still promised them restoration. What has God done for us in Jesus Christ? Grace to me is not getting what I deserve. When I think about Jesus Christ and when I look to the cross, I believe with all of my heart that the cross is me not getting what I deserve. The cross of Jesus Christ is us not getting what we deserve. Instead, God's measured judgment that I deserve because I was dead in my sins and transgresses, God measured that judgment out on Christ instead of me. And that when I look upon the cross... I see the clearest picture of God's mercy. I see the clearest picture of God's love. I see the clearest picture of God's grace because he did that for me. He did that for you and for us. And as his covenant community today, we walk beneath the shadow of the cross. And lest we ever fail to see God's mercy, every time we think upon the cross, we remember just how much he loves to show mercy to his people. The same hope that God promised to the people in Amos' day is the hope he promise, promises to us. And those of us who live by the cross of Jesus Christ as his covenant people today, our charge as disciples is what we read in John 15 a little while ago, that we would go and bear fruit. Amos was a prophet of God called out and Amos went out and he bore fruit but there was a cost and, and if you read on into the rest of chapter 8 you see that there was a cost for Amos to be obedient to not only speak the word but to live the word of God but for those of us who are God's covenant people today our call is to go forth with this message of love and mercy and grace and to bear much fruit 
to the glory of God. The fruit of justice, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of faithfulness and obedience, more than just singing, more than just saying the right words, but living the word of God and seeing with open eyes his work in our midst. The good news for all of us this morning, his promises still stand. Thanks be to God, he is much more patient and merciful with me than I am to myself, than I am to others. Thanks be to God, he is more patient with you, with us, than we are to one another. The theme of God's mercy is clear, and it's clearer than ever to us because of Jesus Christ. Hear these words from Ephesians chapter 2 as we close. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. The grace of the cross of Jesus Christ is us not getting what we deserve. Those who live by the cross of Jesus Christ as his covenant people today, as his disciples, are those who will bear much fruit. Along with that responsibility to speak and to live as God has commanded us is also to walk as Christ has modeled for us to walk. And as Amos says, that through the great love, mercy, and grace of God, we might let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Would you pray with me? Lord, today as we come into a time of response, how can we ever come to a point where we look at the cross and, and, and we don't have a response that's evoked from us? a response of thankfulness, a response of a, an awareness of your mercy, a response that acknowledges the great cost that you paid for us through Jesus Christ that we might be saved. Lord, we look around us and we know that the world can be a dark place, but we also walk in the victory of the light of Jesus Christ the light that is overcoming the darkness and the darkness will never be able to apprehend it. I pray today, Lord, that you would draw us into the light, speak to our hearts, and that each and every person here, Lord, would just have one last moment in this time of worship where our hearts are connected to you. You speak to us, Lord, and you lead us forward to be the people that you've called us to be. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, that you would continue to show us all what it means to be disciples who follow Jesus and bear much fruit for the glory of God. And I pray that if there's anyone here who has not surrendered their life to you, looked to the cross, surrendered their all to you by turning their hearts in repentance, and Lord, who has not become a disciple who is following you for the rest of their life, Lord, today, draw them to yourself as we lift up the name of Jesus. May they be drawn to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.